0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Fitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support the show, please head over to the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter and at Zach.bitter on Facebook. All right, now on to the next topic. All right, folks, we're back for another episode of Human Performance Outliers Podcast. And uh, today we're gonna we're gonna do a little bit of a deep dive into some in some endurance, uh, probably endurance training as well as just kind of like metabolic fueling type stuff. I've got uh, a guest here today uh, named Alan Cousins. Is it it's Cousins, right, Alan? Cousins cousins okay' I'm, I'm sorry and uh, yeah so we're uh, I followed Alan for for quite some time on on Twitter and on his his website for some of the stuff he puts out a lot of cool interesting information that uh, made a lot of sense to me as well as uh, that I thought interesting in terms of kind of trying to tease out why I felt the way I felt feeling different ways and training different ways and things like that so it's an a, a lot of exciting. It's an exciting interview for me to have you on, Alan. So thanks for taking some time to come on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for the invite, Zach. Likewise, I'm uh, su- super excited for these topics. I think uh, we, we've got some some good conversation fodder ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, and, and for our listeners, I know the, the HPO listeners tend to be a fairly wide range of, of uh, athletic type endeavors. We've got you know, a lot of folks who focus out on explosive power sports and some that focus on endurance and others that are just more into health and fitness in general versus trying to peak for any particular event or activity. Um, so if it's not too much trouble, would you be able to kind of give us a bit a brief background kind of, kind of where you're coming from?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, my, my own athletic experience is actually as a swimmer. So I, I grew up, uh, most of my youth uh, was spent sort of in the pool uh, at a fairly serious level um, so i guess I guess in that sense uh, you know uh, the the speed and power uh, audience uh, you know I can probably relate to them uh, from from that perspective you know I, I did a lot of uh, 50 and 100 meter swimming and you know a lot of anaerobic sort of glycolysis, uh, heavy, heavy events, uh, during, during my youth. Um, and then as I kind of went through university, did my sports science degree, got my master's in, in ex-phys, I, uh, kind of, uh, started to slow down a little bit in terms of what I was doing in, in the pool and was looking for some other, uh, you know, kind of outlet for the athletic side of things. So I started to move into triathlon and, uh, Got hooked up with a pro athlete at the time named uh, Gordo Byrne, who was uh, doing doing really well and was a really interesting character because he he was somebody who uh, kind of completely transitioned his life from this this kind of finance venture capital guy uh, into this professional athlete, you know. And uh, he wasn't someone who kind of grew up uh, as an athlete; uh, he he sort of made made that switch and um, he got me really interested in the Ironman side of things and we set up a uh, a human performance lab in Boulder in Colorado and just had a a whole bunch of fun uh, testing athletes, testing Ironman athletes and cyclists and you know the the tops that are world-class endurance performers from a whole whole bunch of different sports and a lot of the focus of that testing was metabolic testing, which is, uh, you know, is still very much an interest for me today, and I think is sort of where we we meet on uh, a lot a lot of interesting stuff with, you know, the, the 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 interest in ketogenic diets and improving fat burning and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and and the, the more athletic side, you know, for performance athletes, where where are those compromises and you know i think that those sort of questions are something that i'm still really interested in and i use a lot of uh a lot of data to try to try to tease out some of those uh you know the, the finer points of, of those sorts of questions
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that's one thing i think that that i want to dive in here today cuz i some of the stuff that that i've seen you 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 talk about in conversations on social media and stuff i think like Oh man, I wish I would have uh, known that back when I first kind of started. I may have been able to accelerate the process I took a little bit, although um, uh, all things considered, I feel like i'm I found a sweet spot for me personally uh, within the context of the sport I do but um, it i one thing I find really interesting about my trajectory into kind of a, a high fat low carb approach to endurance was um, you know, I got into it almost uh, it was almost ten years ago at this point, but it like basically I got into it because I saw other things starting to not necessarily look sustainable in my own training and lifestyle and things like that and uh, had it not been for a few things that worked for me probably as an individual as much as anything because i 've had other people report the exact opposite, and I have no reason not to believe them so it 's like some of those things where it 's just like for whatever reason what I was doing uh, seemed to be uh, you know compromising my sleep and my energy levels throughout the course of the day more so than my, my workout uh, productivity and things like that so when I switched I was trying to almost uh, sus- make 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 my lifestyle sustainable versus uh, versus like try to like drop the lifestyle I guess is maybe the way to look at it because I just started getting into ultra marathon running and and I had things like sleep and energy levels basically improve really, really quick. And if it weren't for that, I don't know that I would have stuck with it necessarily because once I got through maybe like the first, I did, I did about four weeks kind of like doing like a pretty strict keto approach early on, just as you know, cause that's all I really knew at the time uh, was just kind of some of the stuff that like Volok and Finney had put out and uh, what I, what I did realize though, after I kind of got into a full extra structured periodized training block was that strict keto wasn't necessarily the answer from a performance standpoint. And I think that's where you find yourself in some interesting conversations from time to time too, is like, you'll have, uh, a situation where, you know, an athlete or an individual who's participating in an endurance sport will uh, find themselves having a lot of progress and success on a more strict ketogenic diet. And, um, they're wondering why, you know, someone like myself and certainly the folks following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet haven't like, you know, dropped their carbohydrates down to next to nothing, or in some cases, nothing. Um, and it's kind of a tough conversation to have sometimes, because I think there's a lot of middle ground and there's a lot of context within events specifically, but, um, it, uh, when, when you just look at kind of, the the metabolic processes and the intensities that some of these workouts and races it's, it's like this, this area where you, you, you almost need, you need the faster acting fuel sources for, to a degree, but then the, the big question becomes to what degree. And then the context makes that determines that a lot of times. So I think people end up getting confused because they want this like kind of one way or this uh, singular approach to be able to tackle it versus this kind of sliding scale of, uh, of uh, potential like usages of any of these type of dietary strategies.
1: Yeah I think that there's a real tendency to have a very binary approach on nutrition as a whole you know it's just that sort of field that lends itself to uh, people getting very very passionate about a particular system that that works for them and uh, you know when when it comes to athletics we evolve as athletes and, and our output evolves and you know as we get fitter the the power that we're outputting and the, uh, the fuel sources that we're using at our race outputs changes, you know, and I think it, it's a real uh, it's, it's not doing yourself a favor as an athlete to really kind of box yourself into to one approach and not, not have that adaptability. Um, you know, one term that I really like is metabolic flexibility. And then that, that's something that's becoming, you know, a little bit more kind of well-known and popular as a term. And I, I think the first step to becoming metabolically flexible is, is to be mentally flexible in, in your approach. And I see a lot of athletes, uh, you know, they they start something that, that works for them in one sense, and maybe uh, have a really hard time letting that letting that go in order to progress as athletes.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, where I find it really interesting too, especially in the sport of. It, ultra marathon is, you know, we find ourselves, I think a lot of times extrapolating forward a lot of the research and a lot of the stuff that we've seen in some of the marathon and sub marathon type distances, just because that's kind of what we have available for us. Triathlon is another big one, I guess you can pull from cycling too. And those, those two could arguably be even closer because from a, from a time, uh, under stress here, it's just longer duration, but um, it, there, there's a lot of work to probably be done an ultra marathon in order to figure out like exactly what's going on or what's ideal at certain distances and things like that. And in some of these questions, we may not never have an answer to in the short term for certain, but, uh, it makes it interesting to kind of play around with and try to see what does and doesn't work. Uh, it also makes it just as much exciting to talk to guys like yourself who do see athletes in the lab and are able to see like, you know, different metabolic processes take place, from a variety of intensities and then also a variety of dietary patterns. Cause if I'm not mistaken, I, I think I remember you've talked about, you've had pro athletes come into your lab following relatively strict ketogenic diets as well as just low carb diets. And then obviously probably quite a few doing moderate to high carbohydrate diets. And I think like what you probably see on that um, you know, regardless of whether it ends up getting published in the literature or not, is just like an interesting kind of insight into what we could potentially be seeing out in the field from a variety of different approaches. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, what do you see sometimes with some of your athletes are coming in with these different dietary patterns and within different kind of endurance type sports?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a really good point, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the research has been focused on Olympic sports and, if, it, if it's not an Olympic sport, then it doesn't get funding for research. So uh, you know, you you maybe miss out on uh, you know things that are specific to, to a particular event. Um, you know, and, and certainly professional uh, long course triathlon, Ironman triathlon has fallen into that that uh, that gap where there's not a whole lot of research happening for, for that, you know, as is not really a whole lot of research happening for ultra running. So I, I think that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, it's, it's important not to, not to automatically transfer those things that are happening in studies for events that last, you know, four minutes for a mile, maybe. And, uh, you know, but that kind of time range to events that are lasting four hours, eight hours, 12 hours. So I, I think, I think you bring up a really good point that, uh, you know, even when we see these studies come out, you know, Louise Burke is somebody who comes to mind, who's, who's done quite a lot of research in this area, but again, for Olympic events, for, for race walkers and, and, and those sorts of things. So maybe not, uh, maybe not directly transferable to, to, to some of the longer, longer events. Um, which as you said, it is really my interest. And I've been fairly, uh, fairly specifically focused on, on long course triathletes. So 70.3, uh, Ironman athletes, uh, professional cyclists, you know, guys who, whose events are in those multiple hour range, uh, time domains. Um, and yeah, I, have I've certainly uh, had a lot of different types of, uh, types of athletes come into the lab who've been experimenting with different approaches. And I think, I think it's fair to say that I've had enough from the different approaches to come up with some, with some conclusions and come up with some uh, you know, think, things that I expect to see when I hear that an athlete is a keto athlete or is a, a religiously high-carb athlete who's really really pounding the 80% of, of carbs a day and that, those sorts of things. Um, yeah, I mean, diving deeper in, into what, what we do see or what I, I tend to see the keto athletes without question have ridiculously high fat burning, max fat burning rates. So if an athlete says to me that they're they're strict keto and I, I you know believe that they they are strict and and they they've been doing this for some time, I would expect to see max fat oxidation of, of ten kcal per minute plus, you know, which is a just a ridiculously high amount of, of fat burning um for for comparison's sake, the average athlete that comes into the lab is maybe three kcal per minute, you know, so, so we're looking at three, three times that rate. Um, However, the, the downside and the other thing that I tend to see with, with the keto athletes is we, we reach a, a, a cliff where there's, there's a certain output and generally it's approaching threshold that they, they have a hard time going beyond. So, for, you know, more balanced athletes, we'll see medium fat burning that extends kind of a, a, along the curve. But then when fat burning switches off, they have the ability to utilize carbohydrate as a fuel and keep, keep the stages uh, progressing. Whereas the keto athletes on the whole that I've tested, and, you know, again, it's, it's quite a number at this point, they have a hard time once the fat burning shuts down to to generate those high power stages from from carbohydrate and it's very rare for me to see a keto athlete achieve a true vo2 max Mm
0: -hmm. yeah you know that resonates with me in the sense that it kind of matches what my experience was in the field as well as what i think like the way i like to describe it is like a lot of times when people will come to me with questions they they go kind of binary like you mentioned before where they're like do i go do i get like super fat adapted or as fat adapted as I can get? Or do I go very high carbohydrate and just like, you know, create this massive foundation on 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 simple and complex carbohydrates. And you know, I usually talk them through like, well, think of it more as a sliding scale, as opposed to an all or nothing kind of approach. And the question you should be asking isn't should I get incredibly like classic keto fat adapted? Or should I be like, you know, like the like, high carbohydrate is like 80% intake type of thing. Think of it like you want to think of the event yourself and get fat adapted enough so that you can defend muscle glycogen the way that you're able to, from a digestive standpoint and just from a performance standpoint too, especially as we get into these longer distance things. And, and, and what I tell folks is the the likelihood when we add context into that equation, that you're going to want to be as fat adapted as you can possibly get is very low. Like maybe if you're doing like a multi-day type of thing, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Mike McKnight, but, um, he, uh, he runs some of these freakishly long ultra marathons, 200 plus miles. He's actually currently out on the Colorado trail running 500, some miles, uh, going after the record there. And, and I tell folks, I'm like, well, yeah, Mike could probably eat almost no carbohydrates. And at least on paper, he would be because his heart rate may never go above like 130 140 beats per minute but if he's going to try to like maximize his potential at even a hundred mile race and certainly something shorter than that his heart rate's going to get up to the point where in order to defend muscle glycogen throughout the course of that day he's probably going to want to bring in small amounts of carbohydrate to supplement his high fat oxidation rates because um, ideally he's probably not going to be like keto low or zero carb low from the, uh, from the fueling standpoint either. So is that, is that, am I kind of on track with that thinking? Yeah,
1: I I think, I think you, you bring up a really good point. You know, those, those events that are capacity events uh, you know, that, that we're really looking at the, a huge total energy demand, they, they match really well with the fact that we have so much energy in the form of fat on, on board, you know, and especially for events where they're often not supported. So, you know, if you bring food and you bring, bring stuff with you, that's additional weight that you have to carry. And, you know, the, those sorts of considerations as well. Um, the, the, you know, when we're looking at fat, if you, if you think an average guy has maybe 10, 10 kg of, of fat on board, that's a ridiculous amount of energy. You know, that's, that's 9 kcal per gram. So what's that? Like, uh, yeah, almost 100,000 calories of, of, of fat on board. So in, in, terms of, in terms of capacity, the ability to utilize that is, is huge. You know, if, if, if you're doing an event where it's just about getting from point A to point B and we're, we're not concerned with super high rates of, of uh, energy generation, that's more a capacity event then it makes a whole lot of sense to become as as fat adapted as you can be and to to utilize that energy that you have on board. Um, However, there is there's a rate limit, right? You know, there's a there's a fairly hard ceiling where once you start start getting up, you know, 12, 13, 14 kcal per minute, the ability to generate energy from fat, uh, becomes limited you, you just can't you can't uh, burn the fat quickly enough in order to generate energy above that point point. and most events are above that point um, you know apart from events that, that you're talking about with you know maybe 60% VO2 max heart rates of 130 140 those sorts of those sorts of events might might be below that but once we start getting up to those you know a 12-hour event eight-hour event for a professional Ironman there's definitely an energy output that's above what you can generate from fat. So the question becomes, how, where do we get that extra energy from? And, and to what extent do we need to be adapted to those, those other sources of energy, you know, the carbohydrate, the breaking down glycogen, the taking on exogenous carbohydrate during the event, to what extent do we need to be specifically trained to that in order to make use of it during an event? I think you you hit a you know you hit a great point that it's a sliding scale, and uh, the the faster we get and the more the more uh, power powerful the event, the more energy we have to generate per minute, the more we have to be adapted to getting fuel from those other sources that generate energy much more quickly than than what we did from fat
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and i i sometimes I tell people too because the, the next question that sometimes comes up about my approach is they they start to kind of wrap their head around why I would want to you know supplement with at least small amounts of exogenous carbohydrate during the events themselves just cuz you know when I go and run 100 miles in a day like my metabolic expenditure for that like 12 hour time period is you know 10 000 to 12,000 calories so Uh, you know, even at a relative slow trickle in terms of like using my muscle glycogen to supplement any of the slightly higher heart rate sections of that event. um, I'm going to slowly deplete that to the point where, um, where I'm going to want to be taking in those exogenous carbohydrates to defend that. And in order to do that, I do have to be able to process those carbohydrates. So um, the next question then becomes like, well, if I'm following, say a zero carb diet or eliminating every type of food I could possibly supplement with during the race, that's in the carbohydrate category, then I'm probably playing with fire a little bit just from my body uh, down, regulating my ability to actually process enough of it in order to, uh, or to clear that, that, that glucose load that I'm going to bring in. Um, so I, a lot of times I tell folks, it's like some of the it's not the only reason, but part of the reason why I try to keep my carbohydrates at a certain point during kind of peak training and the final stages of preparatory work, even when the intensities drop and the volume goes up a little bit is because on race day, I'm going to be trying to get in somewhere in the neighborhood of probably 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And I need to know that I can do that. So like, I don't want to, I don't want to end up in the same position as I would have been. If I was moderate to high carbohydrate and found that trying to get 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate in per hour was too much for my digestive system, I ended up spending more time on the side of the trail puking and using the bathroom versus, uh, you know, just moving forward. Uh, if I end up just kind of moving that target down by not taking in some of those, those fuel sources in my day-to-day nutrition and my training, I potentially put myself at risk at an even, even lower uh, gram per hour rate is that kind of the way I should be looking at that too? Does that downregulate or could I just stay a little more strict keto and training? And then on race day, uh, you know, just put the carbs back in at maybe 30 to 40 grams per hour and, and not have to worry too much.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that's a really interesting area of research, you know, and uh, it's, it's fairly, fairly recent that that we've had research start to look at is the gut trainable. You know, it does, does the amount of carbohydrate that that we can we can process and that we can absorb in the gut, do, does it change over time in response to the the training that we do, but also in response to the amount of carbohydrate that we 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 challenge challenge the gut with, you know? And now we're starting to see some research coming out that's showing that it is trainable and that that you know the the previously thought limits of of uh, Carbohydrate absorption, you know, those sort of 60 to 80 grams per minute limits are, are being pushed to, to much higher levels when we when we specifically train that. And I think that makes a lot of intuitive sense. You know, the, we're very adaptable as, as human beings. And uh, if if we don't eat carbohydrate at all, um, you know, or significantly limit the amount of carbohydrate in, in our, our regular diet, it makes sense that a lot of those transporters in our guts that that are responsible for extracting the carbohydrate, you know, crossing the the wall of the small intestine in, into the blood, they they take the day off, you know, they're not they're not needed. So so the amount of of those glucose transporters uh, decreases, and yeah, I think I think it probably is a little bit naive to to think that we could go from a position where we're habitually ketogenic and we're not taking in carbohydrate. And then all of a sudden on race day, you know, we think, Oh, well, I'll just take in whatever's on board and it'll it'll be great. Uh, You know, the the body isn't adapted to to do that. Um, You know, and, and certainly I've seen situations where athletes have been ketogenic for a period of time, And then they've, they've moved back to carbohydrates and it can be quite challenging. You know, it can, uh, I've seen athletes get, get sick just, just through virtue of making that, that shift, you know, maybe, maybe too quickly, but I think it does speak to the importance of, of that adaptability of the gut and the, the ability to always, always keep challenging those things that we're going to want to challenge on race day. As you said, you know, even if it's not to the extent, just, Keeping keeping on board those glucose transporters and saying, hey, you know, we we, we might still need you at some point. Uh, you know, in the future, we we want you to hang around and and we we want to to keep with that adaptability and the metabolic flexibility to whatever fuel we decide to give to the body, it's able to make use of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's usually the one of the things I'll I'll tell folks who are kind of a little closer to classic keto. When they're curious about that sort of stuff, is like, well, you switched to trying to burn higher rates of fat for a reason, so you wouldn't be as dependent or reliant on carbohydrate sources. So don't put yourself in the same position from the other angle where you're completely dependent on fat sources either, because, you know, like you mentioned, when you do push those intensities, um, and I think the marathon is probably a perfect example of that, especially if you're um, kind of in the front of the pack, more or less, or between that two, two and a half hour range where. You're, it's just the perfect kind of like gray area where it's fast enough that you're going to dip into muscle glycogen in a fairly meaningful way and it's but it's long enough or you can sustain it long enough that you can be dipping into that for quite a while to the point where you might get to this a spot where where you bonk um, and you you would want to be able to use carbohydrate to kind of keep yourself above that that line where your body's going to downregulate your intensity in order to preserve so like, um, I find that really interesting. And then like when people talk about distances too, I think it sometimes gets even more confusing. Cause if I'm talking to, um, Kipchoge about a marathon, you know, he's thinking two hours and I talk about your average marathon or they might be thinking four or even five hours. So that, that almost becomes a different event at that point then.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the, when you're looking at guys that, uh, like Kipchoge, the, the, the power output that he's putting out is, is, pretty, pretty darn close to the threshold. You know, the, mm-hmm. there's definitely a whole lot of glycolysis going on, going on to fuel that, that sort of effort. So, you know, that, that's a, a different ball game to, to somebody who's just looking to, to finish a marathon, to, to do it in a healthy way. And, you know, maybe to lose a few pounds in, in the process. And um, I, I think, you know, again, it goes back to, to what I was saying, with not being too rigid with your nutritional approach and recognizing that you might start out, you know, in this sport as somebody who just wants to get in shape and wants to lose a few pounds and starts with a 5k and kind of you know the the, the bug takes hold and you decide you want to be more competitive and you know as your as your output grows and as your competitiveness uh, within these events grows, your diet might have to shift to to accommodate that.
0: Mm-hmm. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fastic. Fastic is a free online phone app that helps you set up and structure the right fasting and or intermittent fasting program that is best for you based on your preferences and experience level. The Fastic team has 25 years of fasting experience and has created a platform that helps you stay on track with notifications reminders and allows you to give and receive support from other users you can also upgrade from the free trial to unlock things like food and drink plans that are right for you and educational support to help you understand how and why fasting works head over to your app store and download fastic that's f-a-s-t-i-c and check it out or head to their website at fastic.com links to all of this can be found in the show notes Now back to the show. And one other area along these lines I wanted to chat with you about is like, just to go over a little bit, like what is the physiological processes that makes that the reality and um, the way I've described it and feel free to correct me if I'm off base here. But the way I describe it is when you get up into kind of like the marathon intensity, oxygen consumption just is at that kind of perfect point where you want to be able to use it, very, very efficiently. And carbohydrate burning, it does require less oxygen to do so. So if you're asking your body to break down fatty acids and convert it to ATP at that rate of oxygen consumption, it's going to give that an extra job to do that it wouldn't have to do if it was burning a carbohydrate. Is that part of the reason why some of these elite marathoners are leaning so heavily on carbohydrates at that point? Yeah, exactly. So
1: Fats on the whole take about 5% more oxygen to to combust for the same amount of energy. So if you've got if your threshold is say uh, you know at, at these elite levels, let's say it's 70 mils per kilo is what they have to what they have to produce to to, to run it at that pace. And that's that's the limit of their fitness. If they were to try to do that from from fat burning or even to rely more heavily on fat burning it might take 73 74 mils per kilo to do that which which pushes them above that threshold so that that is an important consideration the more that we move towards this is an oxygen consumption limited event rather than an energy limited event and i think as you said the marathon is in that really kind of tricky sweet spot where it's not totally oxygen consumption limited. You're not right on threshold because if you, if you run right on threshold, you're going to run out of energy probably around the 20 mile mark. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, but at the same time, you still need a very, very high rate of oxygen consumption to, to be competitive at those sorts of levels. So it's, it's a really good example of, of that balance of, uh, you know not wanting to be entirely reliant on fat or entirely reliant on carbohydrate but but somewhere somewhere in in that middle that uh, gives you the o two consumption that you need, but at the same time spares some of that glycogen so that you're not burning through it too quickly
0: mhm yeah, and I think like you know i always, i what I love about the sport and what it's done for me personally is partly just my, uh, my interest in learning different, <laughs> learning about different fields that I otherwise hadn't been any interested in. Like when I think about myself as a high school student, you know, science was one of my least favorite subjects. So like, uh, you know, I, it, it didn't really present, uh, an interesting enough topic to me at the time to really want to dive into it and figure things out. But then when I started uh, getting into endurance sport more seriously and after college, and then when I started kind of playing around with a keto diet, what I realized when I started ramping my training up is basically what you just described is like, I felt once I kind of adapted to it, I felt great running at a aerobic pace of, you know, probably somewhere around 65% of my max heart rate. Um, And I did notice that like in the beginning, my pace was slower, but it came back and normalized after about a month or four or five weeks or so. So then I was like really excited. I was like, okay, I'm really onto something. Not only has my sleep improved, my energy levels feel more stable, my, my base level aerobic paces are, are going great. They're back to where they were before. And I thought like I was off to the races with a strict ketogenic diet for the foreseeable future. And then um, I started uh, specifying my training or started periodizing a little bit as I got back into kind of more structured training after, after a bit of like a, of a you know, base building and off season phase. And I realized pretty quick, like, oh, when I push up much above my aerobic threshold, that's where I started to feel like, like, you know, they're almost like there's a brick wall in front of you and you can't push past it. Whereas other, you know, earlier when I was more moderate to high carbohydrate, you know, you just, yeah, it's harder, but you push up into it pretty easily and then you can sustain it for, for a period of time. So like the, the thing that I think stood out the most to me that uh, caused me to jump into some of the literature more and kind of learn a lot more about some of this stuff was things like or lactic threshold, or uh, I think what we're now starting to kind of term a little more um, approachable to a person that doesn't have access to an exercise phys lab is like a functional threshold power. And that's kind of another topic I wanted to talk to you a little about, just about the general concept of, uh, of lactic threshold and functional threshold power type of stuff. And kind of what what that what that does, and what it uh, why it kind of becomes that interesting point of conflicts between the the strict keto and the high carb groups.
1: So uh, so yeah, I mean
0: I think that uh,
1: there's definitely a focus on on threshold as the number to improve right right now, um, and perhaps uh, it's it's not not all it's cracked up to be in terms of uh ignoring some other points on on the curve that that are really important um you know i know that personally i'm very interested in in that first threshold and and where that's occurring so when we do get to the lab one of the advantages that we have is we're not just just getting the 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 second lactate threshold we're also getting access to to the first lactate threshold which is is a really important marker, you know, especially for for ultra athletes and for long course triathletes. So I, I think it's, uh, I'm still very much a fan of, of getting to the lab and and not basing everything on this functional threshold power, which is kind of this, uh, you know, quasi approximation of where we think that second lactate threshold occurs. Um, That said, you know, I, I think that, there is some advantage in in individualizing the threshold. So, you know, before we really started looking at threshold as kind of the, the defining metric, a lot of things were based on maximum heart rate approximations and, and things like that, you know, which can lead to zones for athletes that are way, way off. So at least by getting something that's a little bit more individual, um, the, the zones that we're typically prescribing for athletes, I think, are, are a little bit more individualized and a little bit more customized, um, but but again, I'd, I'm very much a fan of getting getting real lactate numbers, not approximating it, and and getting that first threshold because that's that's really where a lot of the training a lot of the training happens. And uh, if we can also get metabolic data and we can get you know what is the fat oxidation at at these points, then it adds a whole lot more context because then we know how much carbohydrate and how much glycogen is the athlete burning through in each of these zones, which, which adds a lot more context, you know, especially for, uh, for higher output athletes, where even when they're aerobic and and they're, you know, within what we might call a, a steady aerobic zone, just because of the power that they have, the output is so high that they're burning through a lot of glycogen and it can be really, really helpful to, to have those actual numbers and to know, to know how quickly they're, they're chewing, chewing through the glycogen when they're in those, uh, as high zones.
0: Yeah, no, I think, uh, that makes a ton of sense to me. I always, I tell a lot of my coaching clients to like, I have an appreciation that like, not everyone's going to have access to a lab and be able to get those, those data that done. But when I do have a client come to me like, Oh yeah, I went into a performance lab and I got this, this like this packet of information that shows my lactic threshold, VO2 max, fax ox- oxidation rates and all these things. I'm like, perfect. That's going to make me planning your stuff so much easier. <laughs> so, exactly. And all the way down to what you said too, even when we get to the conversation about like, how should I fuel for this race, which can be a really hard question to answer as a coach, because it can be very individual. Cause you have to consider, first of all, well, first of all, what do you need? But then what can you tolerate? And then where do we find the balance between that? And when someone comes in and we have those numbers where we can actually just do the math and assume like, well, you need to be, probably getting in approximately this many grams of carbohydrate per hour. If you want to reasonably expect to, you know, have, have gas in the tank as you get to the final stages of this race, then we're know what we're working with. And then, then if we find out that that's not achievable, we can either find a way to make it achievable or, you know, you'll work on something else to, to lower the amount of feeling they get. And, and that's usually how I preface how someone should fuel when they come to me, if they have that question specifically, um, you know, a lot of times I hesitate to recommend any dietary approach right out the gate to any clients that are working with me, partly because, you know, I'm not a nutritionist and I don't have access to their background in detail as to what they're consuming. And a lot of times what their you know, what their fat oxidation rates actually are, other than what we like kind of know from the field or can expect from the field. But, uh, you know, a lot of times what I'll say is I'll kind of explain it in those terms where it's like, well, if we find out that, you know, when we exceed, say 50 grams of carbohydrate per hour, it's almost a guaranteed stomach issue for you after four hours, then our options are either learn to be able to tolerate that for longer or find a way to lower that. And that kind of, I think, dictates kind of what fueling strategy people are going to usually take, at least within the context of ultramarathon.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, you hit on a really important point with the individuality, you know, because when, we, when I do these metabolic tests, it's not uncommon to see a real cliff face in, in the fat burning. You know, the, the fat burning is going along great up to a particular power output and then it just stops. And it's incredibly powerful information to know what is that power output when the fat burning just shuts off. Uh, you know, it, it, it speaks to what you're talking about with the nutritional plan for the athlete, you know, how much carbohydrate do, do they need to take in but also strategy wise, you know, a lot of these Man races now are becoming more strategic and more tactical. And you've got to think about where you want to be with respect to the rest of the field and, you know, drafting and, and, and all of those sorts of uh, considerations and for an athlete to know, okay, when I'm, when I'm at 300 Watts, I'm burning 5k cal per minute of fat. But then if I go to 320, I'm burning zero. That's, you know, that that's pretty significant in terms of the, the cost-benefit assessment of: Do I really want to put out a surge to, uh, to to catch up to this this next pack, or do I want to preserve the the carbohydrate that I have, and and can I use that uh, you know to better effect later in the race?
0: All right, folks. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I think it it adds to the excitement in the planning and the logistics and all that stuff because there's just so many there's so many factors. And I think at the end of the day, like none of these approaches come without the risk. So that's what makes it interesting to me because like you can look at it through an ideology and want to focus on all the strengths of one approach and ignore the weaknesses of it. And then focus on all the weaknesses of the other approach and ignore their strengths. But really when I think you find what's going to work best for you, it's oftentimes when you, you kind of start looking at the relative strengths of each of them and then uh, kind of personalizing it to the event and your own experience uh, to a degree as well within, within kind of that framework.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's tricky, trickier than most will acknowledge. I think it's, uh, you know, there's the events that we're talking about, there's all kinds of trade-offs that are, that are happening. And, uh, you know, if if you get it wrong, then, then you're walking, uh, walking into the finish line sort of thing. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, very much, uh, still a process of experimenting and, and still a process of getting to know, the individual in a, whatever depth you can, you know, through these metabolic tests, through field data, through trying different things. And it's uh yeah, it's still a lot of fun.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I, I do want to jump back a little bit to the functional threshold power stuff to a degree, just so our, so so the listeners who aren't as familiar with endurance training and that sort of stuff have an idea of what we're even referring to with that. And a, a lot of times the way I explain it to someone who's kind of new is to think of like, functional threshold power as essentially a way to kind of find a like a a spot in training that you can kind of build or extrapolate things out from and it's essentially a field test or a time trial where you're looking at it in the context of it's kind of the maximum output you can sustain for about a 60 minute time frame am i more or less on point with that kind of basic definition
1: exactly yeah that that's at least how things started uh Andy Coggan, uh, who's a, a physiologist who's, who's, well known among the cycling community, uh, was, was the first guy to come up with that. And then in, in training and racing with a power meter, which was his first book, uh, he, he said that, you know, it's basically the, the power that, a, that an athlete can sustain for approximately 60 minutes. And, uh, over time that's been kind of uh that definition's been shifting a little bit you know some of the software has used modeling and and things like that to to come up with a number that might be a little bit removed from that depending on the the type of athlete but yeah i still i still look at it that way as kind of the the core definition of what what functional threshold is and it it works out quite well with with things like that second lactate threshold in the lab you know there's there's a fairly good uh, correlation between, between those two.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like when you look at it from like a, more of a concrete timeline or timeframe, I think it, just, it becomes a little more usable to the individual too. Cause like what we've talked about in the beginning, like you get your average person in endurance sport and you know, their lactic threshold is probably similar in terms of like the 60 at 60 minute time window. But then you get these elite marathoners who essentially are, just like one of their big goals in training is to kind of push the amount of time they can get up close to that threshold, and that's probably a pretty good determiner of how their performance is going to go. Like when you get some of these guys that are in the low two-hour range, they're they're getting close to to their lactic threshold for in some some cases almost double the time frame we'd expect. Kind of what what the average would be. Is, is that kind of what you see a lot in your own labs? I know you're working with probably some high caliber athletes. What is that? Is there a range you typically see between like kind of your, your average just endurance enthusiast and some of your more serious professional athletes with that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think for, uh, for a race performance, um, we would certainly expect that an athlete can sustain the lactate threshold for longer than 60 minutes. So I think it works well as a field test, but but as you said, you know the the objective really, as you get close to the marathon and certainly a half marathon and those sorts of sorts of distances, we would expect the athlete to be really close to that to their threshold for the duration of duration of that event. Um, a, a lot of it comes down to you know the, the way that I look at threshold is where does the limiter in terms of the output that the athlete is able to put out for the event shift from. Their ability to um, to not accumulate uh, blood lactate, hydrogen ions, all those things that slow us down, from a, from a kind of peripheral sense to I'm running out of glycogen. So that's that's sort of where I see that that threshold occurring, and I think that's a really really practical definition that a lot of athletes can understand who've who've been in the sport for for some time. Is the thing that's slowing me down? My muscles start to burn, and I just I feel that I'm, you know, I have the, the acidosis running through my, I got the battery acid running through my entire system. Is that what I'm feeling that's stopping me from going harder? Or is it that I feel like I've got no energy left in the legs in order to, to produce the output that I want to produce, you know? And I think uh, that threshold is what defines those two, those two limiters.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think like one of the follow up questions with all of that that I think some of the listeners will be interested in is for the groups in that'll tune into this episode that are more kind of strength and power athletes or sprinter athletes, uh, powerlifting type folks. Do, does there do they have uh, any motivation? I guess from a performance standpoint, to be developing that system of training specifically throughout maybe within like a periodized training structure. Or for someone like that, is that something that's just like, okay, that's what my friends over in the endurance world are going to be focusing. I'm going to be over here pushing high weights and sprinting and things like that.
1: Yeah, it's, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, there's a there's a particular paradigm that that is is popular at the moment um, that that comes from uh, from a guy called Sebastian Weber, who uh, who looks at not, not threshold so much per se, but looks at these two components to fitness, VO2 max and VLA max. So, VO2 max is oxygen consumption and what we've been talking about. VLA max is the maximum amount of lactate power that you have, your ability to produce lactate quickly or to use those anaerobic sources quickly. And, you know, I think for, for a strength or power athlete, getting that balance right is is really important. So it becomes important to to know what your curve looks like. You know, are you you somebody who has really, really strong anaerobic uh, capabilities and you can produce lactate really quickly, but you have maybe not the aerobic fitness to, to clear it quickly? Or are you on the other side, somebody with a really high VO2 max who is getting all of the, you know, a whole bunch of the energy generation from aerobic sources, and maybe not tapping into those anaerobic sources uh, quite quite as much as as you you could be, and that's a, that's an interesting thing to track for those more uh, kind of hybrid athletes, you know, a, a 400 meter runner, a 100 meter spr- uh, sprinter in the pool, you know, those sorts of athletes really need to have a sense of of where is the aerobic system and where is the anaerobic system. So knowing, knowing your lactate curve and knowing how steep the lactate curve is when you cross threshold can be, can be really powerful information to, to tell the athlete how, how strong is that anaerobic system right now? And, and is that an area that we we could potentially focus on? Because it, that that's an ability that improves relatively quickly. So, tracking that through the season and being able to say, do I need to, to put in a sharpening block here to really push up the gradient of that, of that anaerobic power? Um, you know, th- those kinds of considerations I think are definitely something that a, a power athlete wants to track.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I always think of it like if, uh, if like kind of your aerobic up to aerobic threshold is kind of the foundation of an endurance program Um, you would think even when you move into the shorter, more intense stuff, you still want a foundation of some sorts and it's probably going to be below whatever your maximum output is. Uh, so like developing that could potentially give yourself a stronger structure to build some of the higher intensity stuff on top of, is that kind of a semi-accurate general way of describing it?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, I, (laughs) I, I don't, I don't think it's ever a bad thing to have to have really fit slow twitch fibers, you know, the, the slow twitch fibers that we have, if we have the ability to not use a whole lot of glycogen just when we're resting or we're walking the dog or we're doing those, those daily activities. If we, if we have good general fitness to, to spare the glycogen for some of those more specific things that we're doing, you know, particularly as a, as speed or power athlete, then it allows us to do a whole lot more of that specific stuff. And so we, we can get a a greater stimulus in that specific training, you know, and I, uh, I think road cyclists who are sprinters are a really interesting case. And it's, it's interesting to look at how they train because they're, they're very much of that, that polarized distribution. You know, they're when they go easy, they go very, very easy and are working specifically on the slow twitch fibers and, and not even risking you know some of that transition for their, for their fast twitch fibers to become more oxidative they they don't want that because they want to be able to produce you know 1500 1600 watts in that that final sprint so they they're very clear on on not uh, not muddying up that that uh, you know those middle waters but at the same time they still do a whole lot of very very easy cycling so that they're generally fit and that they can they can uh, accomplish a lot of specific
0: training in in those those higher intensity zones. Cool. No, that makes that makes sense. Um, the other thing I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about on these is just kind of these we've con- we've kind of I guess more focused on kind of the one polarized end of the intensity spectrum, which is the extreme endurance type stuff. And I guess you know marathon is kind of what I would consider the gray area, middle zone in a lot of cases. But when we talk about folks that are kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, where they are doing these fast glycolytic power type movements, like 100 meter sprinters, you know, power sport athletes, is it more, like what I, the way I usually describe it from a fueling standpoint is if you have someone like that, who's following like a classic ketogenic diet or a zero carb diet or something right near there. And it's kind of a, an enigma in some people's minds, I think. So they they're like, look at the amount of power and output they're doing. They would absolutely need carbohydrate for that. And my explanation is like, well, they, they need muscle glycogen for that. But then the question becomes, is their sport so intense that the amount of volume they're able to spend at in event specific intensities is relatively low enough that they're just never going to really dip far enough into their muscle glycogen stores to the point where they need to supplement with carbohydrate to build it back up quick enough to get to their next workout. And the way I would describe it is my former co-host Sean Baker was exact opposite of me. He's almost twice as big as me, power athlete, rower, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, he'll work out super hard for usually 45 minutes, maybe 60 minutes a day. And then he's done for, you know, 23, 24, 25 hours or so before he works out again. Whereas for me, I kind of operate in like, kind of this aerobic and then up a little bit above that from time to time. But I might do a workout in the morning and then five hours later, go do another one. And then that next morning, do another one. And like that window of time between sessions is so tight for me versus him. And then the relative exposure to like really taking a dip into my muscle glycogen is quite a bit greater as well. It almost introduced this like, kind of like, Thing that's hard to wrap your mind around where like i would be the one that would maybe need to supplement with more carbohydrate than he would even though his activities are much more intense on average than mine are
1: yeah i think that's exactly right you know the the real issue is are you taking your glycogen stores to to empty you know and uh for for an athlete who is is doing things like uh you know they'll do a might do a set of three reps they are a power lifter, you know, they do a set of three reps and then they rest for five minutes, six minutes. The, the power of those three reps is huge, but the overall capacity, you know, you're really not doing that much, that much work. You're not taking, there's not a whole lot of glycogen depletion in in that sort of activity. So, you know, I, I think even for, um, for athletes who are doing, you know, really extended things where it might be primarily fat burning, there's still going to be that, that glycogen depletion. So when you're dealing with an endurance athlete, that's, that's always, that's always a factor. Um, but for strength power athletes, as you said, particularly those, those type who fall under the paradigm of being, uh, more, uh, intensity focused than work capacity focused, uh, you know, they're really not going to ever reach that point where they're out of juice, they're out of glycogen, and they they need to need to recover that. And that's the limit to their training. Um, there's other schools, you know, the, the Bulgarian powerlifters did a whole lot of volume. And so it would surprise me if glycogen wasn't a constraint for, for those guys, you know, they were doing sort of six sessions a day, kind of spread through the day, you know, so I, I think that the, the recovery of, of uh, the, the glycogen and the metabolic aspects would become important for those guys. But yeah, certainly if, if you're not using glycogen, then uh, it becomes less of a concern to, to have to have it on board. And, you know, even in a strict, strict keto approach, your body is still able to create glycogen through, uh, you know, gluconeogenesis. So there's still that ability to produce some. And if you're not, taking it to the limit, then that's, that's not really going to be a, a huge factor in in restricting your work
0: capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like some of the other disciplines that make me kind of think along the same lines, as some of those Bulgarian routines is like, uh, if you have like a mixed martial artist or something like that, where mm-hmm. when they get into kind of their peaking training camp, they might have like three specific workouts in a day and they might not be super long, but you know, they're going to be going glycolytic at points during all of those. So they could do what I like to describe as like what I see a lot of times in endurance athletes that keep their carbs maybe a little too low is you get this like kind of downward sloping staircase where maybe you don't take enough out of it in the first day or two. But, you know, as soon as that volume and that intensity matches the right spot, you're eventually going to get to the bottom of that staircase and you're going to have a day where you feel like you just got a a big backpack full of bricks strapped to you. And you're wondering why you felt so much better the prior three days and I think that's where like, you know, that that usually like when I have an athlete who experiences that that's when it usually clicks for them and they're like, okay, so it wasn't that on those first three days that I didn't need the carbohydrates, I just had enough glycogen reserve to get through it. But then when that finally got to the point where my body said enough is enough, you need to restock and I wasn't doing it quite fast enough that kind of that marginal energy glycogen energy depletion versus resynthesis was enough to make that that fourth day or that third day be the one that kind of showed up on the on the training plan as a as a as a bad a bad outing i guess
1: exactly yeah and the same thing for endurance athletes you know the everything's going great until it's not you know and and you can you can put together uh you know a, a week of good training on relatively low carb and you can be doing all of those things that you think is improving your fat burning. And then it hits you the next week. And the, the end result is that the amount of training that you're able to do is compromised, you know? So my, my kind of uh, attitude is you really don't need to go looking for low glycogen as an endurance athlete. You're going to find it eventually, you Mm -hmm. know, just, just keep training and keep doing the volume. You're going to have those days where your glycogen is low and, and you're, you're training your body to generate energy from fat. And, you know, you're training your brain as well to work off ketones. You know, I think that's another thing that is as uh, is thought that the only way to, to adapt to ketosis and to be able to kind of not fall apart when your body's using, using ketones as a fuel is to always be in ketosis. But, but you know, we, we know as endurance athletes, we have plenty of sessions through the year where we're on the verge of the bonk, you know, and, and those adaptations where the brain has to kind of keep it together and has to come up with, with an alternative to glucose as a fuel, they're, they're challenged. So I think that's, uh, you know, it's important as well, not, not to think that you have to be ketogenic all the time or for really extended periods of time in order to have some of those adaptations, because I know personally, and I don't know about you, but when I, when I first started in, in endurance sport, the bonks that I had were horrible. You know, that I was, <laughs> it was like, you know, snaking on the bike and not being able to see straight and those sorts of things. But over time, the more, the more times that happens, the more you're able to keep it together and realize, Oh, I'm, I'm low on fuel here, but it's not the end of the world. I can get to the gas station and get, get whatever I need to, to keep going. You know? So I think that that's something that can be improved, not just by following a strict ketogenic approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's a uh, kind of a good segue into one of the other questions that I wanted to touch on with you, which is basically like when we look at endurance sport, I think this is what gets the average person. The most confused is the first step really to understanding some of this, I think is actually understanding the large umbrella that includes endurance sport. I mean, if we're talking about like th- something from like three kilometer race up to, you know, a 24 hour event, which wouldn't even encapsulate the entirety of the sport, like that is such a massive range that you almost have different sports within that sport. And then the question that I think comes next after that is like, it makes sense. I think to some people, at least that longer endurance athletes uh, can get away with a higher fat approach. Certainly when they're getting into like the hundred plus mile distance type stuff. Um, But then there's the shorter endurance athletes. And then the question kind of becomes the opposite for each, which is like, should shorter endurance athletes, still spend part of the year or segments of their training fat adapting through their nutrition in order to uh, improve some of those their ability to essentially be more uh, metabolically flexible and save their higher carbohydrate days for the points where they're really trying to peak for a specific event like a 5k versus some of these longer endurance athletes like myself where the question kind of then becomes if we're following a high fat low carb diet when is the right time to supplement with the carbohydrates to make sure you're able to utilize that on performance day and um, some of these bigger workouts? So, do you, I guess, to maybe sum that up so it's a little easier to wrap your head around it and answer the question, is do short endurance athletes, do you think there's a reason for them to spend parts of their season, whether it be the off season or down weeks or things like that, dropping their carbohydrate intake down or doing like fasted long runs or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I mean, you know, I, I think. You hit the nail on the head with we want to devote the carbohydrate to getting better at, at, at the sport. You know, so if you're if you're the type of athlete who is constantly giving giving yourself carbohydrate and your your blood glucose is constantly elevated and your body learns to use glucose for, for the mundane stuff for the walk to the mailbox and you know just the the hanging out in front of the TV, you're you using carbohydrate to to do that then it's carbohydrate that that you don't have for for the the specific work that you want to do so i I think that it, it definitely makes sense and you know really that's the whole concept of base training right it's it's we we want to develop this functional base that enables us to to utilize more energy for the specific work that we do and i think that that teaching your body to not use carbohydrate when you're not working out hard is a really important part of that. That's, it's universally applicable. Uh, you know, whether you're a, whether you're a power lifter, whether you're a, you know, hundred mile plus ultra uh, runner, we all want that. We we all don't. And from a health perspective as well, you know, forget about the athletics. We don't want our, our blood continually full of glucose through the day while we're sitting down at the, at the office or watching TV. We, we don't want, you know, insulin to continually be challenged by the fact that we, we keep our glucose high all of the time. So yeah, for, for sure. I think that the base state that we want is a state where our body can operate at rest and at low intensity, almost exclusively on fat. Now the question becomes what happens in those other states, you know, the, the specific states. And I think that's where, that's where it becomes a little bit more specific to, to the sport. And, uh, you know, certainly, certainly for events less than 12 hours, I think to be competitive, we need to teach ourselves to utilize carbohydrate as a substrate. Um, and as you said before, it's that sliding scale, you know, where it becomes really, really important to, to um, train glycolysis and teach our body to use carbs for for those short events and for the long stuff, it's that keeping that balance of still keeping the fat burning that we're working so hard for in the base period, while still keeping the body's ability to extract glucose for it to cross the gut wall, for our cells to utilize glucose as a substrate to generate energy a little bit more quickly, all of those sorts of adaptations that, that we can lose if we go too extreme with, with the fat burning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, the, the final thing I have on kind of the list of questions I had for you too, was just like this, uh, let's say I, one of the listeners decides, okay, Alan's convinced me I'm going in, I'm going to get a metal test done at a performance lab and they get this packet of information. And then their, their, their next step is how do I use this? And one thing that's going to show up all over that is their respiratory quotient and kind of what their body's doing at certain intensities and the way that uh, I always understand this is like on those respiratory quotient uh, forms, uh, basically you have these numbers that kind of reflect what our body's doing with different fuel substrates. And uh, the way to kind of think about it is it goes down to 0.7, which is basically burning almost entirely fat. And then that number can creep all the way up to 1.0, which would be essentially when you're like completely glycolytic or burning like almost 100% glycogen, carbohydrate, and uh that's kind of that range that you're working within and you can you can manipulate that to a degree through diet and training strategies but you can also you also will move that number by default regardless of your diet based on your output from an exercise standpoint too uh am i kind of on point with with how someone would be looking at those numbers on there on some of their metabolic tests
1: yeah exactly so I think the diet becomes really, uh, really powerful in at rest and at lower intensity exercises. So, you know, if if we see if we do a resting metabolic rate test with somebody who's ketogenic, it's not uncommon to see them very, very close to 0.7, which is 100% fat burning. Um, But then if we do a graded exercise test where we're progressively increasing the intensity then we will see a shift as the intensity goes up from all fat to towards all carb. And, you know, going back to what we said before, it's rare for me in the lab to see a ketogenic athlete get to 1.0 where they're able to burn entirely carbs.
0: Mm -hmm. And is that a sign to you then that if that athlete is in a discipline where it would be beneficial for them to be able to get up to that, that they would, reintroduce some carbohydrate in order to give themselves the opportunity to be able to push up to that 1.0 number?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think it becomes important in training as well because, uh, if, if they can't hit it in the lab, then it's unlikely that they're ever hitting that, that level during, you know, sharpening sessions and, and those sorts of things. So they're missing this whole component of training that, that they could be able to reach if they maybe made some, some small shifts in, in in the nutritional approach.
0: Mm -hmm. And then on the opposite end of that, uh, do you have athletes that come in sometimes and like, you get their resting metabolic numbers and their respiratory quotient is higher than you'd like to see it at rest, and in which case they would benefit maybe from scaling back a little bit on the carbohydrate or at least timing it differently?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to what we were saying with when you walk into the mailbox, you don't want to be using, using glycogen to, to do that, you know, and you don't want to be sitting, uh, watching the TV with a whole lot of blood glucose in, in your system. So it's, that's from a health perspective, certainly the the more troublesome thing when you get someone down doing a resting test and their IQ is already at 0.85 or 0.9, you know, that's uh, definitely not a good thing. And, uh, you know, I think that's, even more cause for, for changes to the diet and, and, you know, more cause to, to dial the carbs way, way back at those times that they're not putting out a lot of, a lot of energy during the day. Cause you know, I, I know that, um, a lot of athletes when they first start training, they might only be training an hour a day or, you know, 90 minutes a day, but the sensation is, well, I'm an athlete now. So I need a lot of carbs, you know, and it's very easy to, to overdo that and to to reach the point where you're not just refueling the carbs that you're putting out, but you're going well well above this to the point that you've always got this glucose circulating through the system, and it it, it always shows up on on those uh, resting metabolic tests. So I think they're a they're a really important test to do, you know. And I, I would encourage everyone to, uh, you know, at least on a periodic basis get that done to just see how much how much fat versus carb you're you're burning at rest
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think it it essentially to a degree draws your draws your strategy out for you it shows you where your strengths and weaknesses are and then it gives you that concrete kind of uh regardless of whether your test is good for you in favor of your performance or bad at least it gives you the where you're at and you can start building from there and uh, i think that information is what a lot of times people are lacking in terms of how they how they go about things and they find that they find themselves trial and erroring their way to like spending an extra year or so getting to where they want to be versus just knowing right out the gate and then addressing some of these things right, right away.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, what you said, uh, you know, uh, earlier in the podcast about feeling that the approach that you're on with, with more carbohydrates early in your athletic career was something that just, just wasn't sustainable. Um, I certainly experienced the same thing as a swimmer, you know, I had these huge energy swings and I was eating ridiculous amounts of carbohydrates and just, uh, you know, we were sick a lot and injured a lot and all, all of those sorts of things. And if I had have had access to this sort of testing and I had have gone in, then I would have, I'm sure I would have seen that my resting RQ was like 0.9 or something, you know, I was mm-hmm. always burning carbohydrates. It was just kind of my default, uh, default state. So you know, it's, it's much easier to get that information from, from a test than to be scratching your head for five years trying to work out why you're, you know, not athletically where you want to be and sick and injured and, and all those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's interesting because I think like when I think back on my experience and how I explain it to people, I really wish I would have done just that and gone in and gotten a test done at that time. And I didn't. And because I suspect that I probably would have seen something similar to what you just described. And if I could pair that with what I was experiencing, I think it's just a lot more convincing to someone who's watching from afar and seeing like, well, you know, is Zach just a massive victim to the placebo (laughs) placebo effect or is like, is, was there actually something going on individual to him that he needed to address? And if I had those numbers and it was like, you said, I had a 0.9 at rest, which could very well have been the case. Then, then the next step is, you know, remedying that, whether you do that through reduced carbohydrate or training and fueling timing differently is, is probably the next, the next debate to be had at that point. But um, it's really interesting stuff. And I think uh, the more we learn about this, and the more we hear from guys like yourself about kind of what types of, uh, what types of stuff is actually available to us as athletes and as just, uh, you know, health connoisseurs is uh, can be pretty eye opening. So it's not necessary. It doesn't have to necessarily be as polarizing as some of the dietary debates become online and stuff from time to time uh, when you can go in and actually find these individual markers for yourself and then start operating from the individual component versus from a kind of a group component
1: exactly yeah i mean i think that that's what kind of fuels the binary binary mindset is when you don't have those numbers you know it's it's like well, I know if I go completely ketogenic, that I'm going to be burning a good amount of fat, and I, I can't argue with that. But the question is, do you need to go to that extreme, or through a few simple changes, could you could you see an improvement in those numbers? Could you move from 0.9 at rest to 0.8 at rest? You know, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think having that quantification and being able to experiment yourself and try things yourself really adds adds a lot of power and, and probably makes things more sustainable, you know, than, than going to, to these extremes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last kind of question I had about, about that in general was, you know, one thing that piqued my interest uh, was a conversation that you were having on, on Twitter and you were, you were talking, you mentioned it a little bit in the beginning of the podcast too, where you see these kind of numbers with a lot of the athletes you're working with, where when they get to a, or when you get up to like, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 13, 14, 15 calories per minute of demand from the intensity of whatever sports you're doing. That's kind of the point at which you can no longer rely on kind of strict ketogenic kind of an approach where you'd start to see, start to see relative performance dips after that when you start kind of inching up. And the reason that was so kind of interesting to me is because if I just do some quick math with kind of like my own basic experiences is if I'm looking at just like about the amount of energy I'm going to burn per mile of running at like right around aerobic threshold or just below, kind of in that range, I'm going to be at somewhere around a seven-minute mile uh, where I would start to get to that point where I could no longer – where I'm going to start wanting to use some exogenous carbohydrate to make sure I'm peaking for performance versus just running as fast as I can on a strict ketogenic diet. And that makes so much sense to me because – usually to date kind of the this in most cases the ceiling of how far i typically go in races is 100 miles and then i'll do stuff below that from 50 miles to 100k a lot of times as well but you know then i'm dipping down into like you know the high sixes into the low sixes in a lot of cases and some of those like you know 80k to 100k type distances which is just like putting me right in that spot where i'm going just fast enough where i need to have a little bit of carbohydrate but possibly not if I'm fat adapted enough to the extreme that we would see a higher moderate carbohydrate athlete need is that kind of make sense to you based on what you've seen with the athletes in your lab exactly yeah
1: yeah I think you, you hit the nail on the head that the highest fat oxidation that I've, I've recorded in my lab was 14 kcal per minute from a, a keto athlete I mm-hmm. uh, they are consistently you know the, the ones who are doing it seriously between 10 and 14 kcal that that sort of range Um, and so, yeah, I think nutritionally, that's that's about where it where it caps out in terms of the the power that you can generate generate from fat. And as you said, you know, for uh, for an ultra runner, that's probably right around that seven minute per mile pace. If, if your event is faster than that, you know, for a for a very speedy speedy guy, um, you're probably going to going to need to utilize some carbohydrate and uh you know that's when we start to move back to those questions of okay we know you're going to need some more carbohydrate is your body going to be adapted to using that carbohydrate and ready for that carbohydrate so i i think yeah for certainly for for serious athletes whose event is less than 12 hours that's going to be a a consideration And, and certainly for ironman athletes that's a that's a consideration you know the we might have some amateurs who are fairly strong on a pure ketogenic approach, um, you know, but once that output starts to move to less than seven minutes per mile or moves to more than 200 watts on the bike, those kinds of ranges, um, we, we start to, to need some, some carbohydrate and need some
0: glycogen as well. mm mm-hmm. With do you remember offhand with that athlete that was stricter keto that got the fourteen kilocals per minute? Do you remember what their their max fat oxidation rate was for that test? Uh,
1: so the, do you mean where it was in terms of their their output, or because the the max was fourteen, so that's that's the the highest? Or do you do you mean in terms of percent VO two max? Or
0: yeah, yeah. If do you have other like. Um, Like, so for like the one, with one of the metabolic tests I got, like they had my peak fat oxidation rate at like 1.56 grams per minute. Did you have a, um, did you have a a similar, so how did you, what what was there? I guess what was theirs in grams? Yeah. So
1: 14 divided by nine is, uh, let's
0: see. I shouldn't have asked you to do math in your head. (laughs) I could have busted my calculator. 1.56. Is that what you said yours was as well? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 1.56. Okay. So I should just borrow that person's numbers and go from there. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm just, I'm just joking. I actually, uh, I was going to go in and get another one done in, uh, April and then all the COVID stuff, uh, came up. So it's gotten pushed back continuously, but I'm hoping to get in sometime this fall and, get some updated numbers on all that and just see where I'm at right now. I suspect it'll be close cause my dietary macronutrient like ratios throughout my, um, phases of training haven't really changed since I had that last one. So I suspect they're going to be at least relatively close, but, um, it is interesting to look at that stuff. Cause like, I know, like I got you, know, I got that same number or same about number when I participated in the faster study with uh, Dr. Volick back in 2014. And, you know, we saw guys, I think push up to, uh, I think the highest on that study was like 1.8. But I believe Louise Burke even got some up to 2.0 grams per minute. And, uh, you know, those folks had to have probably been following a stricter ketogenic diet than I was, I think our parameters for the faster study were 10% or less from a carbohydrate standpoint. Whereas, you know, when you look at, it really just depends, I guess, how you define a ketogenic diet at the end of the day. But for me personally, I've always kind of placed it a little lower than ten percent. If you're going to consider it kind of strict, classical ketogenic, and then much, of, much when you get up to ten percent and higher, you're kind of more in what I guess I would call like a low carb, high fat type of a realm versus um, kind of a branch of that. Is that kind of how you would see that too?
1: Yeah, I mean, I suspect that it's probably uh, also relative to to output. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I would suspect, you know, an athlete who's training 20 hours a week can probably remain ketogenic, uh, you know, on, on a, a higher percentage uh, of, of carbohydrate in their diet. But, uh, yeah, I, I can only imagine that, you know, for for those sorts of studies, you know, especially the Louise Burks at the Institute of sport and those sorts of things, everything's very, very controlled. So yeah. it doesn't surprise me that, uh, you know, we, we see super duper high, uh, rates of, of fat oxidation there. And, you know, the studies that I've, I've or the the work that I've done in the lab, it's been, been a lot more, okay, this is an average, average situation for the athlete. They're doing, doing keto, but, uh, maybe not as interested in impressing me with, with the super high, uh, you know, fat oxidation rates. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that probably comes into play too.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And yeah, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Alan, you've been generous with me so far with uh, all the information and time Where are some other places people can find you. Do you keep a, a website and social media handles?
1: Yep, for sure. Yeah, you can. uh, My website's alancousins.com. So uh, I post some blogs there every so often, I probably need to need to get up to date with that. I haven't posted anything in a while, but uh, you you can find me there. And then always on Twitter. I'm on Twitter way more than I should be at uh, alan underscore cousins. So uh, yeah, if if you have any questions, by all means, hit me up there.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch, Alan, for coming on the show. And We'll definitely have to have you come back on at some point. I think there are, I'm sure I'll come up with more questions that you'll be a good good person to ask. And uh, if you ever have anything you want to chat about, feel free to reach out and be happy to, to bring it back on. I'm actually already brainstorming a a three person podcast with uh, you, Dr. Dan Pluz, and myself. If you're familiar with some of his work, for sure. Yeah, I
1: mean <laughs> Dan, Dan's a really interesting case because he's somebody who has performed really well on on low carbohydrate, and I think is, is another guy who's right at that right at that limit in terms of the outputs that we were talking about, you know? So he's, uh, yeah, he's definitely an interesting, interesting guy in our world to, to chat through. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I love talking to him because he's got, he's got the head for it in terms of understanding all this. And then he's also got the access to the laboratory. So if he's got a question, he can, he can literally try to answer it uh, in the lab if he wants to. Um, And I know he's got a couple grad students too, working on some interesting questions. And I think he's got some interesting stuff that's going to be coming out in the next year in relation to just like not only like where the efficacy is with a high fat, low carb diet in endurance sport, but the timing of when to reintroduce carbohydrates during the event and things like that in order to kind of leverage that metabolic flexibility that we talked about a little bit today. So, um, exciting things, I think coming down from, from a whole lot of folks in that, in that world in the next, the next year or so. And, uh, I'll look forward to kind of keep learning and adjusting as needed, I guess.
1: Exactly, man. Yeah, there's so, so much to learn. And I'm, I'm really excited for, for what the next few years will we'll hold because I think we're just scratching the surface of, uh, you know, some of those nutritional periodization concepts and how we, we deal with timing and, and, and some of those sorts of things. So it's, it's super exciting.
0: Cool, Alan. Well, thanks again for coming on. And uh, I'll let you know when this, when this show goes up. But, uh, you know, otherwise, you have a, a great rest of the day.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Zach. You too. Take care. Thanks, man.
0: Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers Podcasts is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at zackbitter on Instagram, at zbitter on Twitter, and at Zach.bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at HPO podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.